Welcome back, everyone. We are your hosts, Jen Tosley. And Jose Sanchez. And this is episode 79 of the Criminology Academy podcast, where we are criminally academic. In this episode, we have Professor Volkan Topali join us to discuss active offender research. Specifically, we will discuss an overview of active offender research, the St. Louis School approach, challenges associated with active offender research, and how this area of research can expand to more than just primarily qualitative methodologies. Vulcan Topali is a professor of criminal justice and criminology at Georgia State University and co-editor of Criminology. He received his PhD in experimental social psychology from Tulane University in 1998. His scholarly research addresses violence in urban settings with a particular focus on the decision-making of street criminals. Pursue these interests, he employs a multi-method approach with active, non-institutionalized, hardcore street offenders, such as robbers, carjackers, and drug dealers. He has conducted roughly 400 interviews with such individuals in New Orleans, St. Louis, and Atlanta over the past 20 years. His current research is on the decision-making of offenders in cyber context and the future of crime and accelerating technology. He is the author of peer-reviewed research in outlets such as Criminology, Justice Quarterly, the British Journal of Criminology, the Journal of Quantitative Criminology, and Criminal Justice and Behavior. Much of what we will be discussing today comes from one of Wolken's publications titled Learning from Criminals, Active Offender Research for Criminology, co-authored with Timothy Dickinson and Scott Jock, published in the Annual Review of Criminology in 2020. With that being said, let's bring Vulcan in. Hi, Vulcan. Thank you for joining us today. We're excited to dig into your research topics. I'm excited to have you guys dig in. All right. So let's just get down to business. Much of your research focuses on decision-making among individuals who engage in street crime. And to do so, you employ a pretty specific methodological approach called active offender research. And so we want to kick off the podcast with our first question. What actually is active offender research, like in a broad macro sense? Okay. So my training is as a psychologist, not as a traditional criminologist. And so most of the research I did before I got a postdoc in criminology was, you know, sort of two-way mirror experiments with college students in laboratories, that kind of thing. I was very used to getting information directly from people through surveys, questionnaires, and experiments. And when I started working with Richard Wright, who at the time was at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, he was doing this interview-based work, active offender research work, and it sort of was a good mix, right? Because we were both used to the idea of talking to people. I was not used to the idea of talking to people who offend, but he had been doing this in the UK, actually, for years before he came to St. Louis. So a lot of people don't know that, you know, when he was getting his PhD in criminology at the University of Cambridge, he worked with Trevor Bennett and some other folks who were really interested in drug use and drug abuse. And nobody had spent any time actually talking to people who were using drugs. So they were creating all this policy. There were all these sort of assumptions about those individuals, but nobody was actually talking to them. So some of the first work that Richard did was talking to those individuals who were in the process of using drugs. So this is not people who had had drugs. This is not people who had been through therapy yet. These are people who were literally on the skid row kind of streets of London and places like that and talking to them about their experiences and why they did what they did. And then when he came to Missouri, he was sort of talking about that research a lot and was introduced to one of his students who had been paralyzed actually during a drug dealing incident. 
and said, hey, you know, if you really want to understand how people think, how we think, all these theories and everything that you're throwing up <laughs> in class, they don't mean anything. As a matter of fact, I think Richard told me that he was in class and he'd been lecturing for like, you know, it was like the first or second year he was a professor, he was an assistant professor there. And he'd been lecturing about offender decision-making and all this. And there was this one guy in the back in the wheelchair with his arms crossed, just with this sour look on his face. And, you know, after about three or four days, that's very distracting for someone who lectures, as you both know, like to see somebody who's giving you a sour face, crossing their arms, not writing notes. So finally he said, hey, what's the deal here? Am I saying something you don't like? Are you bored? And the guy said, you know, doc, you don't know shit. And Richard being Richard, you know, said, well, tell me more, you know, instead of being insulted. And he said, you're getting all this stuff out of books and everything, but you really need to talk to people. And Richard said, well, I've talked to people who are in prison. And he's no, 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 you can't talk to people in prison. You got to talk to real people doing the real thing right now in the real streets. And so they started bringing individuals in and Richard realized, well, if he could use this as a method to extract information from people who were doing drugs, you could certainly use it for people who were dealing drugs, for people who were engaged in burglary to get money to use drugs, for people who are engaged in robbery because they need money to use drugs, or for people who are robbing each other for drugs, that kind of thing. So it eventually kind of grew out of that. And the idea, the big idea was that when you're getting information from individuals who are in prison, who are incarcerated, what they're giving you is a perspective of someone who has been caught, not someone who is actively involved in the offense itself. And as we all know, you think about things and you communicate about things very differently in different spaces and contexts and places, right? So if you know the three of us are here on Zoom talking about academic life, we got our little academic hats on and we're thinking about universities and students and all that. But if we're at Thanksgiving dinner and we're talking with our uncle or our aunt, or if we're at a reunion with our friends who aren't academics, we would talk about it very, very differently. The underlying assumption is that what you glean from the interviews that you do with people who are actively offending is a richer more authentic kind of experience. You're getting as close to the offense and the offending moments as you can without sort of breaking any kind of any rules, basically. So we're really interested in the foreground of crime, you know, the decision-making process that take place just before someone commits the offense and less interested in sort of the background factors that sort of set the stage for crime. And so the active offender interviewing and decision-making research is really kind of about that. I don't know if that's a good answer or not, but I think that yes. that's, gives it. Yeah, you actually answered a couple of the questions that we had, right. so that's great. And I actually didn't realize that you had a background in psychology, and I feel like that maps on kind of perfectly within this criminological space, you know, actor offender research. So I'm sure that's really helpful to you. Yeah, it was helpful, and it was a little fortuitous because the way I got into criminology was. I finished up a PhD in social cognition and social psychology. I was studying with an aggression researcher and doing all these lab studies where, you know, we'd bring college students in and then we'd break them up into groups. Like one group, we would accuse them of being late to the experiment when they weren't and then try and provoke them. And then we'd put them in a room and make them write stories and see how angry they were. And I just thought that's kind of interesting to study the cognitive characteristics of decision-making, but it wasn't really like real aggression and violence, like college students getting mad at you because you accuse them of being late to an experiment and then writing a story. Like I was like, that's not violence. And so I applied for a postdoc with the National Consortium on Violence Research. And then 
their whole gig was, that was through the National Science Foundation, their whole gig was, we want to match people up with people who do things that are very different. So I was like this experimental quantitative guy. And they said, well, we got to put him with somebody who's qualitative. And so they matched me up with Richard. I thought it was going to be a disaster because at the time I was like talking to people like this is not science. Give me a break. But it ended up being great. And my research in grad school was on retaliation. And that was a big theme of Richard's work at the time. So it all worked out really well. Sometimes you just never know. Yeah, it's serendipity. Yeah, serendipity is to me the most important thing in academia. You have to be open to all the opportunities that come to you. You can't say, well, you know, I'm starting my program now. I'm going to finish in five years. Then I'm going to get a job doing this. Then 10 years from now, yeah. you just have to let the opportunities come to you and be open. To I never would have guessed that I would be doing what I'm doing right now. And it was because I was randomly assigned to work with Richard Wright 24, 25 years ago. So if that advice sounds at all familiar to any of our listeners, it's basically the advice that we get from all of our reflection episodes. <laughs> like everyone yeah. that's a seasoned veteran in the game has yeah. said, you know, it's all about right place, right time, and not being so hyper-focused on anything that you miss the opportunities when they come knocking. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Okay. So we want to start getting a little more specific about the active offender research methodologies and employing them. And again, this is recruiting and speaking directly to individuals who are actively engaged in offending. And so can we dive more into, so like the goals of this method and, you know, what does the research tell us employing this method that we wouldn't have known using offender-based research studies? Yeah, yeah. So the way to think about this is kind of the predominant model in criminology has been for a long time kind of a sociological, large scale kind of, you know, 30,000 to 10,000 feet above the sky kind of way of looking at things. I think sociologists and economists to some extent, and maybe public health people have done a really great job of identifying all of the risk factors, opportunity factors that are associated with putting people on a path or making them at greater risk for engaging in, in offending. But the closer you get to the individual level and the closer you get to the offending moment, the more and more difficult it is for you to draw a straight line between these kind of big kind of what we usually refer to as root cause, kind of antecedent kinds of causes and what that individual is deciding to do right then and right there. And Jack Katz, you know, was kind of one of the first people to talk about this when he said, look, we have to think about not just the background of these things, but the foreground of these things. So the background tells us all the conditions that sort of set somebody up for engaging in a particular type of behavior, but you can't use that information to predict when that individual is going to engage in that behavior. And at that time, you need a different kind of approach to do that. And the example I always like to give is somebody walks past a jewelry store 10 days in a row, right? And on the 11th day, they take a break and they throw it through the window and they snatch the jewelry and they run off. Well, why didn't they do it on day 10? You know, why didn't they do it on day 12? Why didn't they do it on day seven? What was it that happened on day 11 at that very moment that made them suddenly decide that they were going to do what they were going to do? And when you look at it from that perspective, what you realize is that there's a lot of stuff that goes on during the foreground of crime, which is those moments that take place before someone makes that decision that we don't do a very good job of measuring. And so getting as close to the offending moment as we possibly can 
can give us some insights into the kinds of things that influence the uh, offending moment at that time. So if you talk to a number of people and say, hey, how come you did it on day 11 and not day 10? Or how come you, when you were walking down the street, you know, why did you pick that guy to rob and not somebody else down the street? Or what was it about that car that you liked so much that you said, I'm going to carjack this right now, for example. And we also ask a lot of kind of, you know, why didn't you questions? So have you ever seen a card that you really wanted and you didn't go with? Why didn't you decide that that was a good target, for example? And so you learn a lot about offending by asking people about the times that they don't offend. So I'll give you an example. We were talking to some guys who were kind of part of a carjacking crew. There were two or three of them. This was in Atlanta. They were hanging out on the front porch. They woke up that morning. And so I was able to ask them a lot of questions about like, well, you know, what did you do the night before? What time did you wake up? You know, what kinds of things were you doing when you hung out? And, you know, they were talking about, yeah, you know, we had some weed and we had a little bit of money and, you know, we'd had a good time the night before. It was just kind of relaxing. And then this little Honda Civic drives by the house that we were hanging out at. One of my friends said, hey, let's go get that car. And the other two guys are like, nah, man, that car's not shit. That's nothing. You don't want to get that car. Forget it. We're not going to waste our time with that car. But then what happened was they described the rest of their day, which was they were hanging out. They kind of kept smoking. Then they ran out. Then they went and spent some more money to smoke some more. Then they ran out of that. Then they were running out of money. And suddenly it was like the day was going on and they were running out of the things that they had that sort of kept them in a more kind of sane place, so to speak. And they started bickering and fighting with each other in the afternoon. They were like, I told you we should have got that car. You know, I told you we should, you know, this is your fault and all this kind of stuff. Well, it just so happens like within an hour of them really getting into these arguments, the same exact car is driving now back down the street, the other direction, because somebody had been going to work in the morning. Now they're coming back Mm -hmm. home. They see the same car. They went, they got it. So that car was not important to them or important enough to them in the morning, but something about the car and something about their circumstances changed throughout the day to suddenly make it a valuable target. So you can't look at these things in a static way. You can't say, well, that's a Honda Civic and it's a 19, you know, 98 and it's, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so every day that anybody looks at this, this is the chance that's going to get taken. It's like, no, it depends on who the individuals are, what time of day it is, what the circumstances are. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to get to that foreground as close as you can. And when you talk to people who are incarcerated, when you talk to people who are under supervision, their mindset is that of a person who has been caught. Their mindset is that of a person who is regretting their decision, right? And so now if you start talking to them about this and asking them what they were going through, what they were thinking, what their motivations were, they're going to interpret their past behavior through the lens that they currently are seeing the world through you're going to get a very different story from them in the same way that you and I will tell different stories about academia on this podcast versus the kinds of stories that you might tell over the Thanksgiving table, right? Or if you just got tenure, are you guys tenured yet? (laughs) When you just get tenure, it's like the greatest thing in the world, but leading up to it, it's like all this nervousness. So if you ask somebody about the tenure process before you get tenure, You're going to have a very different way of talking about it after you've gotten tenure, right? When you're incarcerated, when you're under supervision, you know, you look and see the world very, very differently. You know, you're in a prison setting, you're wearing an orange jumpsuit, there's brick walls around you, corrections officers, you're living in a situation where your day-to-day life is completely controlled by other people. You're told when to wake up, you're told when to eat, what to eat, you're told when to exercise, when to read, when to watch TV, when to go to bed, you know, all these kinds of things. Well, that's a very different life 
from when you're out on the streets and just kind of living large and doing what you want, right? And you're going to interpret those things very, very differently as a result. They did a study, this was years and years ago. This was in the UK where they asked people, think back to the offense that landed you in prison today and was it worth it, right? And so 35% of them said it was worth it, which I think is crazy because you're in prison, right? But supposedly, so 65% said, no, it wasn't worth it. Okay, fine. Supposedly at the time they committed the offense, 100% of them thought it was worth it because they did it. So clearly their mindsets are different. So active offender research, what it does is it tries to get at the most authentic view that an individual has of their offending. They're not under any kind of control or supervision. They may have just committed an offense yesterday. You know, when you're talking to people who are incarcerated, it could be weeks, months, maybe even years. I mean, if I go to a prison now and say, give me all the guys who have committed carjacking, you know, you get arrested, you go to jail, you go to court, you get sentenced, you go to prison. It could be a year since you've done something. So just having the memory of having committed the offense from yesterday or last week improves the quality of the data. But again, it's about that sort of where am I in my life right now? You know, if I'm walking around with a lot of money in my pocket and I've gotten away with seven or eight different offenses, I'm feeling pretty good about being an offender. But if I'm in an orange jumpsuit, I'm like, damn it, why did I do this? <laughs> so you get very different perspectives as a result. Yeah, that's really interesting. I was thinking, I'm glad you brought up the memory component because that tied when you were telling the story about the people in Atlanta. I was like, would they remember that five years later that in the morning they were like, no. And then later that's when they did it. Or would they just remember that it happened? You know, that's an excellent point. And part of the strategy that we use when we do the interviews is I ask two questions always. There's always these two major kind of orienting questions. Once we get through all the demographics and all that kind of stuff, one of the questions I ask is, tell me about the most memorable blank that you've ever engaged in, carjacking, burglary, robbery, whatever it is. And then the other question I always ask is, tell me about the most recent one. And it's for the reasons that you're referencing, which is it has a lot to do with memory. So things that are memorable are going to be remembered better. And things that are recent are going to be remembered better. This is all the work by Elizabeth Loftus, for example, who's a big memory researcher. And so, you know, you would think, I think most people think, oh, well, you know, if I committed a carjacking, I'd remember every detail of it. It's like, well, you would. But have you done 200 carjackings or 300 carjackings? Mm -hmm. Whenever you do anything a lot, all the details just kind of run into each other. And so you need to, during these interviews, actually use very specific kinds of questions to make sure that you're getting at the most credible information you can. But just a huge advantage of active offending research is that we don't have to wait eight months or nine months or a year before we talk about an event that took place previously. All right. So in your paper, Learning from Criminals, Active Offender Research for Criminology, you kind of go through this overview of active offender research, starting with the earlier works like William Foe White's Street Corner Society and Howard Becker's Outsiders. You also discuss more contemporary research like Anderson's Code of the Street, which I'm guessing pretty much everyone that will have listened to this podcast has read it in the academic area. Hopefully, and Rios is punished policing the lives of Black and Latino boys. Without getting too much into the St. Louis school, because we're going to get there in a second, just how has contemporary active offender research departed or shifted from the earlier works in active offender research? So, not as much as you might think. And I think one thing that Richard's very fond of saying, and I am too, is that there is really nothing new under the sun. And what we mean by that, is 
there were people who pioneered this kind of work before we did. I mean, you can go back to all the ethnology folks in London and whatnot. You know, the same basic processes are there. Identify a population of individuals who are like-minded or engaging in a particular kind of behavior and engage with them on these things. Now, there are things that we know, there are ways in which we've improved qualitative interviewing and qualitative research since then. So the question is always, well, would the Jack Roller be written exactly the same way, you know, today as it was back then? And you always have to take into account what the kind of the surrounding historical cultural context is when you're thinking about these things. So you might read the book and say, well, why is he asking that question? Or there were no computers back then. So, but in terms of the actual process, you know, the biggest issue is usually sort of your positionality and standing and your ability to empathize with the individual that you're talking to and understanding what the differences are between you and them and sort of guarding against that. I think taking advantage of it, but also guarding against it overly influencing the interview process. So we've learned a lot about how to do better interviewing. We've learned a lot about how to structure interviews and interview protocols, coding of interviews, But I think the basic process is still pretty solid and the motivation is still really solid. I think, you know, if you went back and you asked these individuals, why did you decide to talk to these people rather than go into prison? They would have said the same kinds of things that we're saying today, which is that you get a much more authentic experience out of it. So I don't think much about the actual interviews has changed. The content and the motivation for doing this changed. I would say that the techniques have improved. You know, we've learned about different kinds of techniques as we've moved forward. And there are certain ways of coding now that we use that we didn't use back then. But for the most part, it actually hasn't changed as much as you might think. So those old texts and books are fantastic and they're great and you should still read them for sure. For sure. Okay. So Jen just mentioned uh, St. Louis. So let's, <laughs> let's get into St. Louis a little bit. So one okay. of the things you know is that active offender research was loosely formalized through the research being done at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, or UMSA for short, in the early 1990s. However, someone that you mentioned earlier kind of started doing it in the UK first, Richard Wright. And so he had a few projects where he sort of used this method. And I know you mentioned the one with the drug users, but can you tell us more about some of the other projects that he had going on where he employed active offender research methods? Sure. And actually, it's another great example of serendipity, right? Because he happened to be at the right university at the right time with the right connections to make some of this work happen in a way that it might not have if he went to, say, Irvine or Maryland or something like that. So when Richard got to St. Louis, you know, he's kind of a young, kind of hot up and coming assistant professor. He'd been doing this work. He had two streams of research in the UK. One was on sexual assault. And that was a lot of that was kind of archival data. He went to every police department in the United Kingdom, believe it or not, and collected all of their arrest records related to sexual assault and analyzed all that. Then he started doing the research where he was interviewing drug users. When he brought that to St. Louis, he met Dietrich, who's the student in his class that sort of kind of challenged him on the veracity and the usefulness of the research that he was discussing in class. And he was kind of teaching out of a textbook and saying, hey, here's what these people think and here's what these people think. But, you know, Dietrich said, well, we want to know what you think and we don't want to know what you think unless you're talking to the right people. And so he said, well, I did this with drug users and I know that drug users sometimes get desperate and end up engaging in burglary. So maybe this is an opportunity for us to talk to burglars. So he had been talking to drug users in St. Louis, kind of replicating what he had already done 
in London, but that drew in some individuals because you would always ask the question, well, where do you get your money? You know, you don't have a job. Where are you getting your money for your jobs? Oh, I break into houses. So that turned into a project on burglary. And then he started asking the burglars, <laughs> you know, is burglary the only thing you do? Well, no, man, sometimes I do a robbery here. Oh, okay. Well, why? Well, sometimes I can't get into a house or sometimes the houses don't have enough money or I got tired of going to houses because I don't know if there's anyone in the house or if there's an alarm. But with a robbery, you know, you're in control. You have the gun. You can tell the person, you know, you know what time it is. Let me get the money. So then that turned into a research project on robbery. Now, around the time that he started studying robbery, he began working more closely with Scott Decker. And so Scott and he wrote two seminal kind of books that use the active offender approach of burglars on burglary and armed robbers in action. And also around this time, they hired Bruce Jacobs. And Bruce was at UMSL for, I think, about 10 years and, you know, came from California and had just just dove into the research, to be really honest. I and mean, he was like all for it. And as a matter of fact, he took a kind of an odd approach. Richard said to him, oh, well, you know, we have a recruiter and this is how it works. And Bruce said, what do we do if we don't have the recruiter? He said, well, I guess we'd have to go out in the street and do our own work. And then Bruce just went off, like went into the worst neighborhood on a lark and just walked up to a bunch of guys and said, can I talk to you about drug dealing? And he didn't get killed. And, you know, he ended up writing some pretty amazing research himself. And Jody Miller was there at the same time. And so Jody Miller, you know, up it up and girls and gangs and all this kind of work, that's active offender research. Those are connections she made from working with Richard. And so this kind of really neat kind of expansion of the work started taking place. Bruce's research on retaliation has been really, really important. Obviously, Jody's stuff on gender and violence and gangs has been really important. And then I came along as a postdoc kind of near on the tail end of that. And I was very interested in retaliation and sort of the psychological and emotional processes involved in violence and couldn't do it with experiments. So, you know, he sort of taught me how to do that process. And I did street work there for two years as a result. So St. Louis School is really this kind of, you know, it germinated with Richard's initial work with burglars, but then you can kind of see how it just sort of spread out through the power of serendipity, you know, to doing work with Scott Decker and Jody Miller and Bruce Jacobs and me, and then also Scott Jakes later on with his work on middle-class drug dealers, which people hadn't really studied very much before then. Tim Dickinson, who does a lot of stuff on how offenders think about money and how they think about time. And so there are all these other, Mike Sherbino, who's another guy who studies car theft, like you can kind of see the tendrils of this research kind of reaching out and sort of being adopted. And now I have students that are doing work on graffiti writers, child sex groomers online, romance scammers online. I'm doing a lot of online vendor decision-making work right now. We've got guys who do advanced fee fraud scamming research. Crystal Lynn Caraballo, who's now a faculty member at Arizona State University, she and I have written a couple of papers about how street offenders target undocumented immigrants and why they're especially vulnerable. And so all this stuff kind of comes out of that tradition, basically. I don't know if that answers your question, but it does. (laughs) And all of these scholars and researchers kind of use what's called the St. Louis approach, which, you know, in your paper that there's like three core elements to this. Can you just run through the three different elements and kind of what makes, I guess you've already done this, but what makes this approach unique compared to other approaches taken in active offender research? Are you referring to the kind of the processual model that the processual model is actually this really simple way of thinking about things. One thing about this is this is a methodology, but it's a methodology that's strongly connected to the rational choice paradigm. 
it's always good, I think, for if you're just getting started in academia and you're doing social science research to sort of think about, don't think of yourself as a methodology person or just a theory person, but sort of think about which methodologies and theories kind of overlap nicely and mix together well. And rational choice, which I don't think of as a theory so much as a kind of a perspective, is a good mesh with this approach. And what we do in the approach is we ask questions about the execution of the offense in a way that allows us to parse out the offense over time and is readily explainable through rational choice paradigms, right? And then you can layer other theories on top of that. So the processual model is, and it's also for the purposes of communicating this to people, because you're trying to, remember, if you're producing research and no one's reading it, it's nothing but just sort of, you know, navel gazing. You've got to put it in a format that other academics and students, most importantly, you know, and the media and all that can absorb. You can't be kind of opaque about these things. So the processual model is slowing the offense down, slowing the event down so that you can look at each of its components in succession. And the thing to remember is that an offense like carjacking, which is the fastest kind of offense to take place, takes place in moments, right? And so think of this, the processual model as a way of slowing the offense down so that you can look at it frame by frame by frame. And what's the procession of an offense? How do you get from not being motivated to being putting a gun to someone's head, right? How do you go from one to the other? That's really important because we're really, really interested in the St. Louis School. We're very interested in understanding motivation for doing these things, but uh, kind of this granular level. So, you know, you wake up in the morning. Did you wake up in the morning and think, I'm going to go carjack somebody today? Or did you wake up in the morning without that thought, but then suddenly it kind of not suddenly, but over time it came to you, or maybe suddenly it came to you. So I've had guys who said things like, woke up in the morning, I didn't know what I was going to do. But as time went by during the day, I started running out of money and I started thinking about ways to get money. And then the idea popped into my head, maybe I'll go do a carjacking. Other times I've had guys tell me, I've been walking down the street, it started to rain. I was miserable. I saw a car and I said, I'm going to take the car totally on the humbug, so to speak. So the procession is that you have these stages, okay? And you have a kind of a motivation stage. That's like the first time the idea got into your head, I'm going to do this offense. Then there is planning, which includes targeting. And then there's execution. And then there's the aftermath. And this is just a timeline of an offense. But when you take that model and you use it as the basis for doing the interviews, and then you use it as the basis for communicating the results, you get this very nice, smooth, kind of well-articulated structure for communicating science to people. And so if you look at Richard's books, and if you look at some of the papers that we've written, that's how we break things down. We say, okay, let's talk to them about when the idea came in their head. Let's talk about planning. Let's talk about the execution and the aftermath. Now, sometimes all those things happen almost simultaneously. I was walking down the street. It started to rain like hell. I saw a car and I took it. Okay, well, that's not much. Okay. If you write a paper based on that sentence, you know, it's not going to get into criminology. It's not going to get into JRCD. It's not going to get into JQ. What I want to know is why did that happen at that moment? And so then what you do is you interview the individual and ask them to slow everything down. You go back, you say, well, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. You were walking down and it was raining. Tell me how you felt. Why was the rain a problem? How far were you from home? How quickly did you make the decision? In some cases, what they originally think of as a simultaneous experience, right? Like deciding to take the car and then putting the gun to the window. They say, I didn't plan it at all. 
But then when you slow it down, they go, well, I did make sure that I walked up to the driver's side window. And I did make sure I peeked in to make sure there wasn't more than one guy in the car. And I did take a quick look around to make sure there were no cop cars. So then you start realizing like, oh, there was actually some stuff going on. It's just that human beings make decisions so quickly and everything flows so quickly that we forget that there are all these micro decision-making points there. So you get them to slow it down and you get them to break it down to these little pieces. And then you can sort of say, okay, this is the planning phase. This is the execution phase. And then the aftermath is kind of this forgotten phase that people don't think about as much, but they really should. Because what happens after you commit the offense, right? You've got the money. Did you party with it? I always say that the end of every offense is the beginning of the next one, basically. And there are things that change about your thinking as you move forward in time. When you talk to these guys and you, and women, by the way, and you ask them to slow the offense down, you start realizing that some of them plan a lot more than others do. Some of them think about future consequences and some of them don't. One of the things that we know is that as you approach the offending moment, your consideration of things that happen after the offending moment goes down. So today we're talking and I might be thinking about what I'm going to do next week or next month. But as I get closer and closer to robbing you, I'm thinking less and less about what happens after the robbery and more and more about the robbery itself to the point where once that moment happens, I'm not thinking about the aftermath anymore. It's almost an inevitability. So it's like being sucked into a whirlpool kind of. And so breaking the offense down that way is great from an interview standpoint, right? Because you can create a whole interview protocol around those four phases or three phases if you're thinking about motivation and planning as the same phase. And then you can break the data down for coding later on, according to those phases, and then code within those. And then when you're writing about it, you put it into those phases, right? You're explaining it in that way. And then what you do in the discussion section is you speed everything back up again. And you let the reader know that, yes, we broke this offense down into these three or four distinct components, but they actually do all flow into each other. We just did this for explanatory purposes so that you understand what's going on. And so I think that for the reader, you know, you do want to tell a story. You know, the best stories are the ones where people think they see something and then you kind of go back and say, no, let's take a look at it again. You know, lots of crime capers and magic trick kind of movies and things like that will do that. They'll slow things down, freeze frame. And so it's kind of a cinematic way of looking at offending, sort of a storyline from the beginning to the end of the offense. The offense itself is the story. Now we want to get into some of the challenges that come with doing this kind of research. (laughs) I, and you laugh. So, you know, I think in all of the information you've given us, I'm sure some people have started to wonder, well, this sounds kind of hard. Like this doesn't necessarily sound like the easiest way to do research. And this is something that you yourself acknowledge. And so the first question that we want to ask you regarding some of the challenges comes with something that researchers have to deal with before they even get their studies off the ground, which is getting approval from the IRB or the Institutional Review Board or Human Subjects Board. Can you tell us some of the challenges that maybe you've run into and sort of how you would advise us younger researchers on navigating some of those IRB challenges? So lots of wine. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta go stock up now. (laughs) In all seriousness, it's interesting. It's interesting. I'll say one thing that, you know, the IRB is the bane of many people's existence and we all get that. So let's not turn this into a complaint fest about the IRB and acknowledge that they're there and they have to be dealt with. And you can go the easy way or the hard way. Now, sometimes the hard way is the right way to do it. There have been times when I've pushed back and you have to know when 
And it is important to push back because every time you complete an IRB and get it approved and conduct the research, you've now set a precedent for the kind of process that's going to follow. And that precedent can either help you along the way or it can start to really slow you down. So there are lots of things to take into account here, but that's the first thing I would say. I think that there are lots of informal things that you need to do when you're working with the IRB, things that will not be on the website and that people will not tell you to do. So part of the secret sauce is contacting the IRB folks and talking to them about your proposal before you start filling it out and just say, hey, can I just take a few minutes here? I'm new to this. I think I've got some examples of how to do this properly, but I just want to make sure that I'm not wasting my time and your time. So you want to put them at ease. And it's kind of like interviewing people too. You want to put them at ease as well. And so you give a description of what you're doing and say, look, is there anything that you need me to really focus on or be careful about as I move forward with this and see if you can get some preemptive kind of golden nuggets of wisdom that could cut a week or two weeks or three weeks off of the process. There've been plenty of times I've seen people just barrel head first in and they write up stuff and they use the wrong language. It's not even that they... You know, they weren't trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes, but just using a wrong word here or there suddenly can make everything grind to a halt. And the other thing I'll say is it depends on your institution. So some institutions are very, very nervous about this kind of work. It tends not to garner a huge amount of grant dollars. So you get less leeway. You know, if you're the biomedical institute research guy bringing in $10 million a year, you know, the IRB and some of these other grant offices, they're there at your beck and call. They're there to help you. But if you're the guy or the woman who is doing research on a population like this, and the grants are only a few hundred thousand dollars or something, they might just say, wow, there's a lot of liability here. And we're going to just really, really, you know, tighten down on this. Just keep that in mind that everyone's equal, but some people are more equal than others when it comes to dealing with university administrations. The other thing is, when I say it depends on your institution, some institutions have recently gone through a problem, for example, like, for example, NSF might shut down their research because they've screwed up on reporting or something. So they may be extra over, over, over sensitive to some things. And that's something that's out of your control. Nothing you can do about other institutions. The advantage is that they've never seen research like this. And so they're really relying on you to tell them, hey, this is how this research goes. And oh, by the way, lots of people do this work. You can and then cite Topoli and cite, you know, Wright and all these other people. And they kind of put their mind at ease. So when I was at University of Missouri, St. Louis, Richard was that guy. You know, he was the first guy to do this kind of stuff. They'd never seen anything like it. At the time, they weren't a big research university. So, you know, they just sort of said, sure, okay, if you say so, sounds good. So I had a very easy experience during my postdoc at So when I got to GSU, it was like, oh, no, 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 no. This is, what, what are you, who are you talking to? Why are you talking to them? When are you talking to them? And I mean, it got to the point where I was going back and forth with the IRB so much. It was partly, I think it was that they didn't understand the research. Partly, I think they were worried about safety issues. And then there was also, and I think legitimately, there were questions about, here's a white researcher conducting research on a population of color. And are these individuals going to be mischaracterized in the research? Are they going to be at some sort of danger? My interviewees are not a protected population, you know, like people who are in prison. Some people mistakenly think that's the case. They're not. But I treat them as though they are because they're 
in danger. You know, if they're seen talking to the wrong guy or if someone overhears them saying the wrong thing, they could be in danger. Sometimes the IRB is concerned about that. I've had the IRB say things like, well, you're going to bring them onto campus or are you going to be talking to them in the streets? And I said, nah, mostly in the streets, but every once in a while we'll bring someone onto campus if they don't want people to see them talking to me in the street. And I've had two kinds of comments. One is, well, how are we going to guarantee the safety of people on campus if you're bringing these guys here? And the other one is, how are we going to guarantee their safety? So the first question is kind of a stereotype that, well, they're crazy, violent, you know, drug dealers. And so they're going to just come to campus and shoot campus up. It's ridiculous. When they come onto campus, they're actually kind of intimidated because it's, you know, it's this kind of um, educational institution. They're not used to their surroundings. They're really actually very cool when they're here. So that's just a stereotype. I always dispense that pretty quickly. The other question was kind of odd at first. And I thought, well, maybe there was a point there, which was they show up on campus. What about the campus police? Aren't they going to stop them and search them and all that? My response is it's an open public campus. They have every right to be here. They're my guest. And so if the police are pulling them over or stopping them, then that's something to complain to the police about. So these are this kind of these issues that would come up. And I actually, at one point for a project, I had submitted and resubmitted for review six times in a row, the same protocol. And it just kept coming back with these questions. It was like, I was about to lose a grant over it. So I finally said, I can't do this anymore. And I contacted them and I said, can I just come to the meeting? Can I just sit there and just answer questions? But I don't want to keep doing this back and forth. Very inefficient. Uh, And they said, well, we don't usually do that kind of thing, but sure. And I spent two hours answering questions. And some of them were great. And some of them were just ridiculous. Like, can we convince you to wear a bulletproof vest when you go Mm -hmm. out and do the interviews? And I was (laughs) like, well, I don't think they're going to really, that's not really a good way to build trust. I think they just had to get some questions off their chests. Because, you know, we're talking about people who are from the community too, right? So we're talking about, we had a minister, we had a medical doctor, we had a lawyer, we had a nurse, we had a housewife, you know, so we have people there that not only did they not understand criminology, they just didn't understand research in general, right? They're sort of there to sort of say, hey, this is what the community thinks of this. So I think this kind of having a good relationship and going back and forth is really important. It is a population of individuals where there's a lack of stability, where there is violence, where they do carry guns, where you're sometimes doing the research in areas that are not be considered safe for people who don't come from those neighborhoods. Two things I would remind people. One is these are neighborhoods. They're not war zones. And that stereotyping of place is really problematic, I think. So when I go to these places, I just see a neighborhood. Now, is there more graffiti? Is the infrastructure a little bit more worn down? Is there maybe some open air drug markets and maybe some of these? Yes, there is some of that kind of stuff. But the the stereotype people have is that you go there and it's just gunfire everywhere and everybody's a criminal. And it's not. These are communities. The other thing I would say is that I don't want to sort of exaggerate like the dangerousness of my job. Like I'm not out to show people how cool it is that anthropologists, they're the real heroes. Those guys, those women they are the ones that die on a regular basis. They go into the most dangerous places. They live in places for months, years. They catch diseases. They disappear. Like if you want to talk to somebody who's really in danger, talk to them. A criminologist who do this kind of work may be a little bit more at risk than someone who's sitting in their office just doing another meta-analysis. But overall, I'd say that the work is, it sounds more dangerous than it actually is. And I think demystifying it to some extent is really important, especially for the IRB. The last thing you want to do is make the IRB think that this is some kind of um, you know movie where you're always in danger. I think that's a mistake. So, right. 
Okay. So in addition to IRB, there are also a number of challenges associated just with the active offenders themselves, such Mm as recruitment issues, the spontaneity or maybe impulsiveness of some of these people, and just what you mentioned, the possibility of being in danger as the researcher. Can you elaborate on some of these and then maybe tell us, you know, how to try and prevent some of these issues from happening? Okay. So I'll give you some general guidelines and then one or two stories. The general guideline is to, and I think this is actually much more difficult than people think it is, but my best advice is that when you're interacting with these individuals, as you would interact with absolutely anybody else in any other situation, it's really critical to be sort of respectful and also to some extent kind of separate from them. One of the mistakes I see people engage in, and I've worked with some people, this really comes out during the interviews, is that they very quickly get sucked into the idea of, hey, you and I really get it. You know, we know, you know, this sort of like um, what I call uh, criminogenic tourism, which is you kind of say, oh, you know, I know what it's like out on the streets, man, and all this kind of stuff. No, you do not know what it's like out on the streets. I grew up poor, and I don't know what it's like to grow up on the streets that they're going on. So the very first thing you have to do is disabuse yourself of the notion that you understand it at a core level the way they do. What you're able to do is interpret by being respectful, by understanding who they are and where they're coming from. So that's one kind of pitfall that people have. The other one is it is hard for some people to interview these individuals and not feel judgmental or disgusted by their behavior and then want to sort of challenge them about the things that they've done. And it's a huge mistake because the fastest way to shut one of these individuals down is to make them think that you're judging them in some way, right? Because you have to remember, you're coming at them as a person who comes from that other world, right? You've got a PhD and you know, you're know you educated and all these kinds of things. They're kind of on notice. They put themselves on notice that you know they're not going to let you disrespect them in any way. And there's already this kind of an imbalance. So I always come to these interviews. One of the first things I say to them is, you are the expert. I'm trying to learn from you. I'm here for you to teach me something. This is really important that I want you to teach me something. I don't understand these things. I'm going to ask you questions. And I want you to tell me that's a stupid question. I want you to tell me that's a bad question. I want you to tell me that's an irrelevant question. So it's very, very important that you can respect these individuals without condoning their behavior and their activities. And I think once they sense that that's where you're coming from, they open up, you know, they're much, much more likely to be honest with you. One of the other advantages of doing active offending research is that when you're in prison and you're interviewing them, they're worried about, are they going to tell on themselves? Are you going to get them caught up in something? Most of them are in for one offense, but they've committed a hundred So I'd like to talk to them about the other hundred offenses. They're not going to talk to me about that in prison. When I'm out on the street, we can talk about any of those things, right? But we can only do it if they feel comfortable, if they feel like, not that they're in control, because you don't want to let them think they're in control, but you don't want them to think you're controlling the situation either. You're sort of coming to this as kind of differential equals in a way. You know, I have something to do here. I'm respecting you. I'm trying to learn from you. And they understand at the same time. So I think the trick is to make sure that you've set that up. Now, they're unpredictable. They live their own schedules. They have their own lives. They have their own way of talking. There are things that insult them that wouldn't insult you. There are things that make them nervous that wouldn't make you nervous. 
one of the things I've learned is when you're having these discussions with these individuals, the wrong look, you know, the wrong tone, they pick up on it super fast, right? And if they feel like you're condescending or you're asking a question that's disrespectful in some way, the best thing that can happen is that the interview gets shut down. The worst thing that can happen is that they decide that they're going to kick your ass or something like that. So some of this is it really does take a long time to learn how to do the work and how to have these conversations. I have students that train under me. I never send a student out to go and do interviews on their own. So I say, you got to sit in, you got to listen, you got to be quiet. You know, actually the training, what we really do is first we start off with just, you have to transcribe, just transcribe, transcribe. And you have to code, 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 code. Now you can sit in. <laughs> now you can ask a question, you know. Now you can ask some questions and I'll ask most of the questions. Now you'll ask most of the questions, I'll ask some, and then eventually they're in charge of whatever they're doing. But then doing street work is like this whole other level of we got to go out together, we got to find the right spots, et cetera. You know, they're not on the kind of an academic timeline. So, hey, I have to see you at three o'clock. <laughs> maybe, you know, if I have a watch, maybe I'll see you at three o'clock. Maybe I'll see you at 2.30. Maybe I'll see you at four. And they don't care if I have to meet with a student at 4.45 or something like that. They're going to just show up when they show up. So there are all these frustrations that accrue from that kind of stuff. When, when they come onto campus, they're a little bit more difficult to have discussions with because they feel like they're in an institutionalized setting. On the other hand, when you're out where they are, it can be a lot more chaotic. You know, they can just get up and walk away and leave you stuck there with nothing to do. So, and then the other thing is that at least half to 75% of the guys that we talk to are on something when we're talking to them. That's normative. Mm -hmm. They smoke a little, you know, each day, they drink a little each day. So you should expect there to be that kind of issue. They can be kind of chaotic affairs. They may decide to bring four or five of their friends. And then you're having to figure out like, okay, what am I going to do with these other four guys while I'm talking to this person? And we have had guys that took things the wrong way. I went to do an interview with a guy. I have a recruiter that helps me. I went to do an interview with a guy at a park and we sat down. I sat down at the bench and he sat down with me and I said, are you ready to do this interview? I was about to read the protocol to him and he just took a huge gun and put it right down on the table. He's like, I'm not doing shit with you. You're just going to give me your money. And I was like, sure. I said, I only have the money I brought with me for you to do this interview because we pay our interview. So I said, you can have it or we could do the interview and you could still have it. And he paused for about 10 seconds. He's like, okay, all right, I'll do the interview with you. That was not my best interview. <laughs> yeah. Because it not have a gun pointed at your chest. But, you know, we did go through the interview and it was, you know, kind of worked out. We've had offenders who have come to campus and you leave them in their office and they go through all your stuff. They use your phone. They take things. I was abandoned by an offender. There was a building that used to be a kind of a motel and they had turned it into what they call a bunkhouse, which is where people can go to smoke crack and deal drugs and stuff. And I went there to do observational stuff. And the guy who took me there was like, okay, we're going to take you there for an hour. I talked to the guy who runs the bunkhouse. He's going to be cool with it. Just sit in the corner. Don't talk to people. Well, I'll sit in the corner and then all of a sudden he gets a phone call and he's like, yeah, I got to go. And I said, oh, I'll come with you. And he goes, well, you can't come with me because I got some drama with my kid's mom and stuff, but I'll come back for you. Don't worry. And I said, are you sure? And he said, yeah, I'm sure. No problem. Well, he never came back. And I ended up spending the entire night in that place. And I ended up having to walk. Wow. It was amazing. And I learned a lot, but it was, yeah. it was a very tense night. I mean, there's no doubt about it. So you do get these kinds of situations. We have recruiters that are former offenders. Some of them are very reliable. Some of them are not reliable at all. I've had recruiters who, when they run out of people for us to talk to because they want to get the recruitment fee, they'll go back and they'll bring back the same guy again 
and then tell us that it's somebody else. And we usually figure it out. And then there's a question like, what do you do? Do you confront them about it? And we found that no, we just go through the interview. It's a junk interview. We toss it out, but we retain the relationship with the recruiter, which is more important because they're bringing us other people. And we don't want to burn our reputation on the streets. So just a few tidbits. Yeah. Thanks for all those tips. <laughs> the research sounds really interesting, challenging, and sometimes frustrating, but I suppose that can be said for most research, but in different ways. Definitely not the kind of research to do if you want to publish like 10 or 15 papers a year, because you've got to put a lot of work in to get the data. And there's a kind of a stereotype that oh, qualitative research isn't serious because you're only talking to 25 or 30 people. And I always like to say that quantitative data is kind of a mile wide and an inch deep and qualitative data is a mile deep and an inch wide, right? So, you know, you think that I've talked to 25 guys and that N is so small, they're thinking about in terms of power and stuff. But then I realize is that over 25 interviews, I've got almost a thousand pages of data that all has to be coded. And that's really, really deep, rich data that takes a long time to look at. And there are things that we've learned how to do very recently to speed some of that process up, but it is a different kind of animal in that respect, for sure. Yeah. Well, actually, I think that leads us nicely into our next question, which is sort of expanding this type of research. And, you know, you're just talking about qualitative methods. And for anyone that's sort of been paying attention, which you should, that's why you're listening to this podcast, probably notice that this research method seems to lend itself pretty nicely to qualitative methods. But we also know that that's not everyone's jam. And there are people that, like you mentioned, are critical of qualitative research. So this question is kind of twofold. First, does this type of research lend itself in any way to quantitative methods? So with advancements in technology, how can that start coming into play with this type of research? Awesome question. It's one of my favorite questions to get lately. Two things, or a few things, I should say. You don't have to be a qualitative researcher to work with active offenders. That's number one really important thing. What you do have to have is a connection with somebody who has access to offenders. So I wouldn't recommend that just go out and do it on your own, but kind of connect with somebody. Now, what can you do if you're not a qualitative researcher, but you want to work with active offenders? So I do a lot of mixed methods research. One of the projects I did a while ago, we brought in active offenders But instead of doing interviews with them, we had them watch these computerized video displays of people interacting in very, very simple ways, and then ask them to describe what they were seeing on these video displays. So this is almost kind of like the research you see with people when they're using like little storyboards and things like that, except that this is actual video. And we coded that, those videos, so you get qualitative data out of it. But then we numeralized it, essentially, by having people rate the statements they came up. And we ended up getting quantitative data out of that. So that's one example. Another one is, I've done research projects where I've interviewed these guys, but then I also give them a bunch of standardized questionnaires on impulsivity control, on future thinking, on emotional labiality and things like that. So you can mix in quantitative data with the qualitative data. I think that that's actually the strongest kind of research. When you have one group of individuals that you're getting qualitative data and quantitative data from, you're sort of bridging the gap between internal validity and external validity, right? Qualitative data interviews have high, high external validity, but low internal validity experiments and other quantitative approaches have high internal validity, but low external validity. If I run an experiment, 
it's kind of an artificial kind of a situation, right? It's not kind of low external validity. So putting both of those things together in a research project can be really, really helpful. Tim Brzezina and Erdal Tekken and I did that in a crim piece that we wrote, I think it was 2009, where we interviewed young offenders about their thoughts about their, you know, how long they would live and their future life consequences, anticipated early death. But we also had the ad health data set. And we were able to conduct a, you know, a number of really sophisticated diff and diff analyses to sort of merge those two kinds of data sets together. So the quantitative data told us that there was a significant relationship and the qualitative data told us what that relationship was about. I have brought in guys to talk and then had other researchers piggyback on what I'm doing. So Frances Chen, who's in my department, is a great example of that. She's a biopsychosocial criminologist. She collects saliva samples and she measures heart rate and galvanic skin responses and things like that. And she said to me, when you're done with these guys, do you think they would do like a 15 minute little thing with me? And I said, sure. And so she ended up writing a whole paper, which appeared in a journal that's not even a criminology journal, appeared in like a neuroendocrinology journal, where she collected actual biological data from active offenders, which is just mind blowing to think about. I mean, that's active offender biology research, right? And very quantitative, obviously. The other direction I would say, so other than partnering up with people who have access to these kinds of populations and thinking about ways to combine quantitative and qualitative approaches, the other aspect of this is to look at what are the advancements in technology that allow us to collect data in very different kinds of ways. And there are a few ways to think about this. The first is there's a wonderful program of research right now taking place at Portsmouth University, University of Portsmouth in the United Kingdom, and the Max Planck Institute in Freiburg. And that's Claire Nee in Portsmouth and Jean-Louis Van Gelder, who is the head of Max Planck in Freiburg. And what they're doing is they're using virtual reality environments, and they are standardizing the environments, and then having people go through those environments and commit offenses. And so literally, they're having people who are in prison, who are in prison for burglary, go through a virtual burglary environment. It's a neighborhood, and then you can break into a house in the neighborhood, and you can go through each of the rooms, and you can check drawers, and you can take decide what to take and what not to take. And what they're doing is they're comparing the offenders to non-offenders to police officers. So police officers know a lot about burglary because they investigate it, right? And what you find is that the burglars and the police officers, they have some things in common, but they also have some differences, right? So this is getting at expertise. You know, what is the expertise? And I know a lot of people think, oh, you know, how much expertise do you need to like rob somebody, burglarize somebody? Actually, a lot. These individuals have such amazing powers of perception when it comes to which houses to target, which one's not the target. We had hints of this 20, 30 years ago when Richard was doing some of this work in St. Louis. He would drive around with burglars and he would sort of say, would you burglarize that house? Would you burglarize that house? And they would pick up things that you and I would never think of. They would say, oh, and they do it in 10 seconds. Hey, no, that's got a double lock on the bottom of the door. And also see that fence, there's wire mesh under the fence. So it might be harder to get out over it. So I wouldn't be able to do that. You and I would have no clue. In some cases, they actually pointed to houses they had actually burglarized. And so they would sit there in the car and sort of say, well, why did you burglarize that house? And he would remember, you know, the context was important. So the person that would say, oh, I remember jumping the fence. There was a dog, but the chain didn't go all the way. I was able to sneak around. But now with this technology, you can create these environments and the imagery is just getting better and better and better and better. And so you're getting closer and closer and closer to that authentic kind of environment. Now, is it the same as actually burglarizing a home? No, but it's a lot better than reading 
you know, a short paragraph about it or writing a short paragraph about it, right? So I think that technology holds a lot of promise. The last two things I'll talk about, one is the use of agent-based modeling, which you have to do a lot of, you have to understand Python and all those kinds of things to do, but this is essentially creating environments and then you sort of program offenders, computerized offenders within the environments with information and let them kind of go through the environment and see what they do in terms of, do they rob people? Do they burglarize people? What nobody has done is they've not taken the qualitative data that we have to feed the algorithm, essentially. So right now, the algorithms have been fed by criminologists who think they understand crime. I'd rather have the algorithm fed by the actual offenders through the interviews. So you can code the interviews, feed them into the algorithm, and then have these models kind of run. And you can run them thousands of times and get patterns of behavior. And that could maybe help with policy. The final frontier, I think, is all the online crime that's taking place right now is dwarfing the amount of street crime. It just is. And we have an exponential increase in technology. We have a huge increase in online crime. The amount of street crime, traditional crime has basically stayed the same. The amount of crime that's taking place outside that is massive, but we don't have data on it because it's not in the NIBRs or anything like that. And so this is fertile ground for people. I'm doing interviews right now with online drug dealers. I'm doing interviews with advanced fee fraud scammers. We're scraping data to learn about romance fraud, child sex grooming. And these all rely on that active offender, you know, sort of uh, approach. It still boils down to motivation, planning, enactment, and the aftermath. And we still use those same methods. We're just talking to them in a different environment. You know, we were talking to the offenders out on the streets. We're talking to the cyber offenders on the cyber streets, so to speak. So many cool, exciting projects coming up. I know the online environment that is becoming a much bigger point of discussion, I think, for a lot of people. So that's really cool that you're doing some work in that area. The important thing about that work is that, you know, people think you can just take the theories and processes that we use to study traditional crime and just transfer them over to online. But, you know, the online world is totally different. You can look the way you want. You can change your voice. You're doing romance fraud. Instead of talking one-on-one to somebody, you can send 20,000 emails out. You can use voice recognition software, deep fakes. It's a very different world. And I don't know that the traditional criminological theories are all, I don't know if all of them are going to be applicable anymore to this new environment. So there's definitely a good place to do qualitative research, grounded theory work, because that's where the ideas come to actually test. And so I want to see more people doing that kind of qualitative work in these environments for sure. All right. Well, thank you so much, Vulcan, that for all the questions that we have for you. It was a pleasure to have you on today. Before we wrap up, is there anything that you would like to plug? Anything that you want to announce or share with people? No, I don't want to plug anything. I'm not a plugger, but I do want to also just make sure everyone remembers serendipity, serendipity, serendipity is like the most important thing. So just keep that in mind. And then where can people find you if they want to reach out, ask questions, get some information? You can go to my university website and my email is listed there. I'm on what used to be called Twitter and is now unfortunately called X. X. Uh, <laughs> on threads. Um, Jen also- and I have had a long discussion yeah. on, on this X. <laughs> oh man, it's painful. It's really painful, I gotta say. But you still tweet. I tweet. Yeah. I see I, I, I or whatever. It is. Well, I mean, he's destroying the platform, but <laughs> it still exists and people still engage with it. And as long as they do, I'll continue to tweet. I would say I am probably not the best example for people to emulate when it comes to tweeting because I put personal stuff on there and professional stuff. And then I can't keep my mouth shut about my politics. And so 
that's probably not a great mix for someone who's up and coming, but I don't care about those things. So I still do. And I find it, it is a good way to communicate, especially to younger generations. We put out the announcement that we were going to do research notes in criminology, for example, and all the you know 20 and 30 year olds were excited and knew about it. And none of the 40, 50, and 60 year olds had a clue that this was happening until I had to send them an actual email and say, by the way, you submit like this now. So yeah, I still Z tweet, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Post. Yeah. I was telling Jen I should just be musking. Like <laughs> that's what he wants. He just wants his name out there, you know. Let's give him what he wants exactly for sure. It was so nice oh, to see you guys. This is a great podcast. I love it. It's great. Yeah. It was great, great having to see you. you too. Hopefully and, uh, we can see you at ASC. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Let's take a picture. Okay. For sure. All yes. right, guys. Absolutely. All right. Thank you again. Thank you. Uh, my pleasure. Bye. See you later. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, or let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Crim Academy. That's T-H-E-C-R-I-M. A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. Or email us at thecrimacademy at gmail.com. See you next time. See you next time. time.